Welcome to the San Jose Hockey Now podcast. This is Shang Peng. I'm editor-in-chief of San Jose Hockey Now. Also, you can find my work at NBC Sharks. Find my work also on Twitter at Shang underscore Peng. And I'm Keegan McNally. You can find me at Halfwall underscore Hockey on Twitter. Also at San Jose Hockey Now. Today, we have a special guest, Sharks great and current assistant GM of the Flyers, Alan McCauley. Alan is here to talk about his time with the Sharks. He's one of just two Sharks to ever be nominated for a Selkie Trophy. And he also was part of the first Sharks Western Conference final team in 2004. Also, too, Alan's going to talk a little bit about the Flyers rebuild and Matt Michkov. We're also bringing you Keegan's insights into the recently played World Junior Showcase, Summer Showcase, a tournament that had a lot of Sharks prospects, had seven of them, including Will Smith, Quentin Musty, Philip Bystead. And of course, we have, of course, Eric Carlson news, which we're going to start off with. And um, just a little disclaimer for everybody. We're recording this on Saturday evening, um, 8.30 Atlantic time, my time, I think 4.30 Pacific time. Um, and, uh, that means that by the time that you hear this, if it's Monday or Tuesday or whenever, there might've already been some Carlson trade news, um, right. but we haven't got to it yet. Um, Which we will get to, uh, mm-hmm. uh, if and when it happens, if it does happen, you might get two podcasts <laughs> that week. Um, but for now, this is the pre Carlson trade podcast. Yes. Um, so Carlson news is really kind of like Pittsburgh penguin news almost. So Penguins have long been considered like the front runner. I say long been, it's only been a month. Long been considered the front runner for Carlson. Um, And they had recently, um, as of today, I believe, um, opened a buyout window um, where they could buy out one of their players, uh, which doesn't always happen. It requires some special circumstances to have like a 72-hour or 48-hour window of time um, to buy out a player. And yeah, that ends on the AV has to be over four million. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's very it's not like the general buyout windows that are mm-hmm. that normally happen. So it's a little bit more specific. There's been some speculation that because of this, they could use this buyout window to clear cap space by either buying out Mikel Granlund or Jeff Petrie, who've been both mentioned in Carlson trade rumors as kind of like the salary going back for the player for Carlson. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, Shang, I wanted to get your thoughts on that bit of news. Basically, are the Penguins in this buyout window? Are they going to think about buying out one of these players? Well, that's a Penguins writer that, but yeah, <laughs> but <All> right. oh, <laughs> podcast over. Uh, mm-hmm. but, um, from my understanding, have talked with some people and actually, uh, Elliot Friedman repeated the same thing that Kyle Dubas doesn't believe in buyouts and, Looking back at it, he never bought anybody out in Toronto. And so you have that already. So you have a, a GM who is not necessarily has used that mechanism a lot. But though, I want to talk specifically about Mikhail Granlin because he is both the most intriguing buyout and trade candidate for the Penguins. And again, the relevance for Carlson, like you clear a lot of money, maybe the Pens can't fit Carlson in, in uh, if, you, if you buy somebody like Granlin out. But anyway, let's talk first about Granlin's buyout and why that is he's way more attractive as a buyout candidate than Jeff Petrie. And right now, Granlin has $5 million AAV. That's his contract for the next two years. But if you buy him out, his cap hit would be just 833000 in the first year, $1.8 million basically the next year, and one point. 8 million the last two years. 
So that's a pretty good savings in the first two years there, right? Especially mm-hmm. the, the first year of the buyout, um, you save $4.2 million almost. Anyway, Petri's buy, uh, Petri's uh, buy, if you buy Petri out, even though Petri's AAV is higher, $6.25 million, he's got bonuses. And so basically what happens mm-hmm. here is that <clears throat> the cap hit on a Petri buyout is $3 million in the first year. So compare that to Granlin, $800,000. Uh, four point five million in year two. <laughs> Compare that to Grandland one point eight in the in the second year, and then one point two five million in the last two years of the buyout. So that's slightly better than Grandland, but there's no real comparison there. You know, Petrie's contract is almost buyout proof in a way because there just aren't a lot of savings uh, to it. And you barely and, you barely get uh, anything by uh, by doing that. Um, like you, right. you save a little bit of time, but you could also just retain half on Petrie and trade him to a team that he wants to go to. And then you'd be basically doing better than you would from a buyout for the next Mm -hmm. two years. Right. Right. And so, so, so kind of, so, so that's so, so in in terms of trade then, um, Granlin, so Granlin doesn't have any trade protections while Petrie has a 15 team trade, uh, no trade list. And so that's a huge difference, you know, you can trade Granlin anywhere. Petrie, uh, not so much. And according to Rob Rossi of The Athletic, San Jose is on Jeff Petrie's 15-team no-trade list uh, because San Jose is far from his family. I believe Petrie lives in Michigan. And I haven't been able to confirm that, that that, that is indeed the case, that San Jose is on his list. But it wouldn't be surprising. And and so it makes, it makes uh, Petrie, he's both an unattractive trade candidate for San Jose and an unattractive bio candidate for Pittsburgh. And so anything involving Petrie, like you alluded to, Keegan, I assume is going to require a third team. And so mm-hmm. anyway, you know, my reaction to all the news this weekend in terms of what are the pens going to do uh, and how that can kind of what that means for Eric Carlson. To me, all eyes are on Mikhail Granlin right now. Yeah, it seems like Granlin's the more favorable option. And I think the... Um... The thing to bring up with that is even though Petrie's last two years are 1.2 versus Granlin's 1.8, the Penguins seemingly are in this window where they want to compete while Mm -hmm. Malkin and Crosby are still Malkin and Crosby-ing, at least a a little bit. Um, Letanging is still Letanging. And Letanging is still Letanging. So it doesn't really matter what happens in the last two years. It really kind of matters over the next two years. I think that's kind of their window of time is, is that, and if they're going to go for it, which all indications are that Dubas was brought in to try and get this core to win again, um, that it, it Granlin seems to be the more attractive option rather mm-hmm. than Jeff Petrie. Um, but, but I would say though, <laughs> though, uh, if, if I can step in here that, what makes it interesting, though, is that um, if Granlin is both your most attractive buyout and trade candidate, we well, can only do one or the other with him. And where does that leave Petrie? And so, you know, we'll we'll see we'll see where that all ends up. Yeah, is there a world where Carlson comes and Petrie stays? Maybe you'd have to get really creative with the cap. Yeah. I, I don't know. Um, it's possible, I guess. Uh, yeah, know, they they don't. But have then the Pittsburgh might have to trade Pedersen, which they don't want to do. So. Sure, exactly. Somebody who's more valuable, um, younger, all that. So, mm-hmm. but the other team that's always brought up, and we've I think basically every week have mentioned these two teams is Carolina. <laughs> um, and Carolina recently signed Tony D'Angelo um, after he was uh, bought out by uh, the Flyers. 
He uh, signed for, I think, $1.675, one year, uh, $1.675 million. Um, D'Angelo, as most people know, is an offensive right-handed defenseman. And Carlson is also an offensive right-handed defenseman. So does this kind of take them out of the Carlson trade talks by signing D'Angelo? Right, and Brent Burns, too, is also another offensive yeah, right-handed Brent defenseman. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so good news for the Sharks, I think, is that I personally wouldn't count Carolina out from – Uh, a Carlson trade and this is just my opinion Uh, but the reason why I call it good news is because you need more teams interested in Carlson to kind of up trade offers if it's just Pittsburgh that's uh, you know very very interested then you're not going to get a great offer from them and so anyway a lot of people did take the Tony D'Angelo signing as eliminating Carolina from the, the Carlson chase and of course, like you mentioned, uh, having three right-handed power play guys like Burns, Carlson, and D'Angelo, that honestly seems wacky, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, wacky to me too. Um, but <laughs> if you look at uh, D'Angelo's uh, contract though, right, it's uh, one year uh, for $1.675 million. Um, that number is, well, that's that's a bottom pairing or even number seven defenseman number, right? I mean, that's not a number that necessarily earmarks a guy uh, to be in your top four. And so if he's bad or you need cap space, too, you can even bury D'Angelo, uh, most of that $1.675 million in the minors, uh, up to, you can bury up to $1.15 million in the AHL. So... Mm-hmm. While uh, I would still kind of maintain what I've heard, what I mentioned in the podcast before, that I think the Canes are still circling around Carlson, mainly, f- you know, for a bargain. And, and uh, it, you know, I don't, I don't think that they want Carlson as much as Dubas might. And they definitely don't need Carlson as much as Pittsburgh sure. does to kind of up their ceiling. Carolina, of course, is a very, very good team already. Uh, but, you know, however you slice it, though, it's good, though, if there are more teams interested in, in Carlson. And so, yeah, so that's 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 my takeaway there. So still in it, maybe even though they signed D'Angelo, because worst case scenario, you get Carlson and D'Angelo no longer fits on your team. You wouldn't mm-hmm. really count that much against you or you use him in a, a sheltered third pairing role where maybe he could still contribute offensively um, or on the second power play. However, they slice it up, basically. Right. Um, and I think this is a little bit off the script, but there was the basically wondering how Carolina can kind of fit these deals in, um, because they seem to be close to the cap when you first look at it. Um, but, uh, your thoughts on, on that, at least a little bit. Well, Carolina's done a tremendous job with their cap. If you, if you look at, uh, their, their, uh, Puckpedia page, um, it's, uh, I think right now they're pretty much up against the cap, but. You know, a couple things that they can do easily to uh, to 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 get well under to fit in a, a Carlson. Um, they have three goalies right now, and one of them, uh, Kochikov, uh, he is waiver exempt, and so yep. you can take take his two million AAV off of the beginning of the season. Um, they right now they have I think eight defensemen attacked uh, 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 on. So you know, uh, Coglin, a guy making close to the minimum, he might be a guy that they they try out in waivers. They just send them down. Sure. Um, obviously, you know everyone's heard Brett Pesci. Uh, uh, his name has been in trade rumors. So uh, Brett Pesci and Brady uh, Brady Shea, uh, they're both UFAs after uh, next season, and yeah. they're both guys though. Even though uh, uh, they um, 
Well, they're both guys that both have a lot of value, basically. And so that's a good mm-hmm. problem to have. They're not a Granlin or Petrie problem. And the last guy, you know, the other like, kind of popular kind of candidate contract, you know, salary dump candidate on the Hurricanes is uh, Toy Vuteravainen. But even he is a way more attractive buyout and trade option compared to Granlin uh, or, uh, or, or yeah. Petrie because uh, Teravainen has only got one year left on his deal, $5.4 million, and he's only 28 too. So both Granlin and Petrie are, are past 30. And so otherwise, look at their cap sheet. I mean, okay, you know, like uh, Col- uh, Niemi is probably signed for too long. I think we all agree on that. But like sure. otherwise, I mean, um, they, they have a very good looking, uh, a very good looking uh, a sheet. And even uh, I know that they need to extend on uh, Neches and uh, they just extended on Aho at a actually yeah. a pretty reasonable rate, I think, for a guy. It's a huge caliber. get for them. Um, for yeah. sure, because there was that whole saga with with Aho and the the Canadians, basically, yep. um, and now he's signed long term uh, after yep. they got it back. Yeah, uh, but overall, though, you know, I think it's uh, it's a testament to what they've done there. You look at their cap sheet; it's a contending team that could well mm-hmm. win the Stanley Cup exactly as they are right now, and yep. they don't have a you know, an awful contract on, on the books, even a you know, Tara Vina, I've talked with people, you know, it, he had a bad year last year, but he was really good before. And I don't know if that's considered a bad contract. That's kind of just, you know, okay. Down year. Yeah. yeah. And you, you hope he bounces back. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise they don't, they don't really have a bad contract on their books. And so that's uh, really, really impressive to build as deep a team as they have uh, uh, all, you know, well, you know, pretty, pretty well under the cap. And I mean, they mm-hmm. were in Tarasenko. Um, you know, I think I think they had offered him a, a five uh, more than five million, and so you know they still seem to be in on uh, on on Carlson too. Yeah. So I kind of just basically leaves it open that Carolina is still in the running, and and more to that, they don't have a bad contract on their books. But yeah. how how likely are they to take on a bad contract? I think they're going to want a, a significant amount of retention if, if they were to take Carlson just I would based so. off of their previous history and, and how good they are with their cap. I would think so. Yeah. So again, I think they're looking for kind of, kind of a deal, but they mm-hmm. are still interested and they haven't, you know, if they had signed Tarasenko, maybe that would have taken them out of it in terms of just the fitting in the money, maybe. Uh, but D'Angelo, I, I don't think, I don't think does it, but uh, in terms of just, uh, just to kind of close off before we, do we, we, you know, we, we, talk all this Carlson stuff uh, every week and <laughs> yeah. you know it's you know it's it, we don't we don't have any uh, you know any 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 hard news uh, yet so uh just uh curious about sort of Keegan your prediction for uh, for this uh this weekend or what's what's going to happen uh with with the penguins uh, <clears throat> uh yeah. and their buyout situation and how that affects uh, Carlson. So anyway, I'm going to start with my prediction and then, and then sure. I'm curious what, what you think. So uh, for me, this is a pure guess. So I want to stress this a million times. This is a pure guess. Okay. So uh, I'm not advocating for it. I'm not saying it just, I'm just guessing based on just the best guess on, on what I think uh, will, sure. will happen. Okay. And we'll see, uh, we might find out by, uh, we'll find out actually, we'll find out by Monday if I'm right in terms of uh, a buyout. Right. So anyway, um, I think that the pens do buy out Granlin just because it's just way too attractive a savings for them. And also too, you know, they're kind of tied to can't, they are over the cap right now, but Genso just uh, went down. So they may start the season with him on LTIR. So they might be, they may not need to, to get rid of Granlin or Petrie, but, 
Gensel's going to come back. Gensel's injury isn't the injury that's going to take him off for the year. And so I think that Granlin, again, just too attractive a savings on, on a buyout, which we talked about. Um, mm-hmm. I'm going to predict. So again, these are just, 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 uh, just predictions here that Pittsburgh does trade Petrie to say a Chicago. Uh, mm-hmm. We've talked mm-hmm. before um, I either on this podcast or I've written, you know, why Chicago is a good candidate. Um, yeah, Chicago has shown willingness to take on bad contracts this summer. Josh Bailey, if you look at Chicago, needs defensemen right now. And also, too, uh, Chicago is obviously close to Michigan. And so um, I, I think I, I think that that, that could happen. Uh, Pittsburgh will have to attach a, uh, a a first. At least that's 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 my guess, that they'll have to attach a, at least a first-round pick to get Petrie over there. They're not going to want to do that, but... Uh, that's the price. Um, I think the Sharks right now, you know, in terms of the, their retention amount, you know, most of the the talk seems to be that's about 20%. Uh, I think that they increased the retention amount to say 30%, not 40%, which is what I've kind of urged just for them to ma- to get a stronger return, not 50%, mm-hmm. which is the max that they can retain, even though Mike Rea said that we're not going to do that. He said that at the beginning of the summer. So sure. I think they increase a little bit to 30%. And at that point, I think the pens start to offer actual assets in the trade, uh, actual things that the Sharks can use, you know, like decent-ish uh, uh, future assets, which I'm not sure that is out there right now for about 20% retention. So anyway, I do seriously doubt, and, you know, you're not fans aren't going to like hearing this, but I do seriously doubt that the pens are going to part with another first. You know, remember in this scenario that they've already sent out a first with Petrie. So I don't think they'll, yeah. they'll trade another first. I don't think that they're going to trade Pickering or Jaeger, their, their best prospects right now, for that amount of retention. But then, you know, we have to figure out what can they offer from that point, a second round pick, whatever, right? That then mm-hmm. it becomes enough for the Sharks to move on from Carlson and just kind of wash their 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 hands hands of it. So anyway, uh, overall, I don't think any a, a, everything gets resolved by this weekend, which um, I, I think has sort of been suggested just because, okay, so for Dubas, right, to exercise the buyout on Monday, uh, he has to be reasonably sure that the other moving parts – Petrie yep. to a third team, the Sharks accept his offer, are reasonably in place or close, I think. Um, and so if, if those things you know, fall in place, you know, I don't think everything gets resolved by this weekend, but it could be pretty soon, though, um, after that. Because like I said, it, if Dubas does buy out Grandlin and then you're thinking that, okay, that means – you know, if he if Dubas does A and it means B and C, which I, I don't know for sure, by the way. I do, I do, I do want to say that. Like there is reason for Pittsburgh to buy out Grandlin, uh completely independent of, of Eric Carlson, which which, sure. which I which I mentioned. But anyway, all this is a complete guess anyway. So uh so this is just my my guess. Uh what's so your, your guess is basic your guess is basically Grandlin gets bought out, Patrick or Petrie gets traded to like Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the Sharks eventually make a trade with the Penguins, but that might not happen by Monday, basically. Yeah, that will be my my guess because uh, I, I think that mm-hmm. um, I think it's gonna be disappointing for the Sharks and to to in this scenario to not get a first for Carlson, and sure. so they'll they'll need to hold out to get a, a better return. But I like you said I I don't think I I don't I don't think it uh, uh, it would go up to a first or Pickering or Jaeger uh, caliber, at, at least at yeah. that amount of retention. 
I think I think that I think that, that scenario is probably solid, right? Where they buy out Grandland. Mm-hmm. Um, I do wonder why it didn't happen this morning when the window opened. Sure. Uh, if they knew they were going to do this, why they didn't do it on the first day? Like, is there more thinking to go, or is it not going to happen? Well, like I said, it could be contingent on 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 B and C on other moving parts and, and the sharks, yeah. right? Like again, yeah. being like reasonably close, where it's like, okay, you know, sure. I think this is going to happen. We just need to, you know, figure out some details, you know. But yeah, yeah, and they maybe. still do have two more days. Maybe they just want to yeah. wait it off. Um, but that would be my only like hold up about the buyout thing. I think it's still possible that he gets traded rather than bought out because he was traded for like sure. a second round pick. Yeah, he had a really but... poor twenty games with Penguins. Like that was it was pretty awful. Um, and it was considered an overpay and they were just trying to find a way to make the playoffs kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But it's not like he's, you know, league wide, regardless, like a horrible player. He had a bad no, it's year. True. Uh, well, so, yeah, but he's at two years left. That's part of it though. Right. And so that's why two years and 5 million, but he also has like yeah. no trade protection. So I yeah. think there's still a possibility that he's traded, whether or not that's well, to the shark or anywhere. My, my, my argument with again, with that though, is that they got to trade Petrie too. They basically to mm-hmm. clear a space for a Carlson, not to get under the cap. So yeah. we don't worry about that. So they may just buy out a Granlin and keep Petrie. who knows. Right. But, uh, but they yeah. want to fit in on Carlson. They probably need to get rid of both. And mm-hmm. I think that obviously Pittsburgh will want to get rid of both and not give up multiple first. Yeah. I and just so don't think... I, so I think it's trading or buying, you know, it's basically trading one because you need to mm-hmm. attach a first. I think Randlin, you had to attach a first. That's at least, I know what he went for uh, during the last trade deadline, but uh, you know, speaking with my sources, like that's where his value is kind of at that. They still need to, to, to throw in a first with a Grandlin. Um, mm-hmm. Even though the things you say are true, he's, you know, younger and he's, you know, he's like closer 30. to, I mean, yeah. He just said, he's like been regarded as a good forward for a long yes. time. No, my for other sure. argument for about that I'm not buying out is mm-hmm. like, if the rest of this deal isn't in place, um, with the Sharks, their forward depth is not good either. Like their bottom three forwards are Drew O'Connor, Matt Nieto, Alexander Nylander, and and Noah Chari and, and Lars Eller, Jeff Carter, who had a horrible year. Like their forward depth in the bottom isn't good. So no, it's it's true. Could, Pittsburgh's a very flawed team, yeah, for sure. Yeah, so they could just say, okay, we're gonna hold on to Grandland, and if we can trade him in a Carlson deal to the Sharks, then we'll do it. But we might not buy him out yet. That would be my prediction. To counter your prediction, but I still think yours is probably slightly more likely that they do just right. buy Well, they, they again, though, if they trade Granlin to the Sharks, you probably need to give the Sharks a first, too. And I guess that's what I mean. Like, they're mm-hmm. not going to, if they need to trade Petrie and add a first and trade Granlin and add a first, that's two first round picks going out. I, yeah, that, but that's that like an ideal, an ideal world. I think, like, I don't know. There is a way I think Greer could spin this where he gets a first because he's mm-hmm. taking on like Grandland and mm-hmm. he still spends it as, oh, well, we got assets back, right? It, sure. Even though they did have to, most of that asset is just the money that they got for taking Grandland. Mm-hmm. Um, but at least you can spin it to people that you didn't give Carlson away for nothing. Because oh, that sure, would be sure, the way yeah. that I would do it. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, I, I do agree with that. I mean, that's why I yeah, mentioned that but... Granlin is a way more attractive trade candidate. You could trade him to yeah. San Jose. And San Jose could have use for, you know, Granlin can can bounce back and uh, sure. maybe trade him next trade deadline. You know, not not but... this coming one, but the, the next one. Um, but again, though, what do you do with Petrie then? And, yeah. the, you know, Petrie's still got to go, which is and, a, yeah. it's, it's hard to do. Mm-hmm. It's, it's hard. Yeah. So, and so, yeah. So, so I guess like, um, 
I think uh, I, I think uh, the buyout kind of makes sense for Pittsburgh just because it's 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 clean and it's there's a lot of savings on Gremlin. It's a mm-hmm. it's a attractive-ish buyout. I guess I guess that's 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 why uh, there's more of a fixation yeah. with Gremlin with with his buyout because. Um, yeah, I think yeah. your I think your prediction is is probably more likely. I just think yeah. that there is still a possibility that trade is the option rather than buyout. Sure. And then yeah, I think. At the end of the day, I don't have a good Carlson prediction other than I think it'll be the Penguins. It's just how much we're actually going to get. Is, mm. is... And you still think this summer? Yeah, I still think this summer. I think okay. by training camp time frame. Okay. okay. It's just um, going to be more waiting. Or it happens tomorrow guess... and <laughs> we get scrapped this whole thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> A second round pick in Ty Smith, anybody? 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 Any <laughs> yeah, throw it a goalie prospect and we're solid. I think we need a few more of those. <laughs> All right. Let's uh, let's move on from the Carlson talk and let's talk about uh, the Royal Junior Summer Showcase. And this is an event hosted by USA Hockey and uh, it's in Michigan. Features uh, Sweden, Finland, and two USA teams and uh, split squad USA teams. And it's a lead up for the World Junior Championships. It's, you know, all players, U20 players, and just the best prospects uh, for these respective countries. And these teams sort of bring, like Sweden will bring, and Finland will bring kind of their top 30 players, right, for this tournament. And USA, of course, two teams. So they'll be, you know, top 50 or so of the USA prospects. And so anyway, this is all preparation for roster decisions, World Junior Championships roster decisions uh, for uh, December when that starts. Anyway, Sharks had the most prospects of any AHL team here. They had seven prospects across these three uh, countries. And I want to start, Keegan, I want your opinion uh, uh, on these guys because you watched watched as much of the Summer Showcase as you could. You watched plenty of it. And – Everything that I've read or heard and seen about Will Smith is that he was one of the most impressive prospects of this tournament. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, Will Smith, like game by game, it was um, pretty apparent that he was probably in the top three or so of of, um, USA forwards. Uh, He uh, was notably off of a line from Leonard and Perot. So his line mates during his junior year uh, last year, he was only pretty much playing with Leonard and Perot. Uh, they formed the most dynamic uh, junior hockey line uh, in the country, or multiple countries. Um, and uh, he really didn't play with them this tournament, which is good because it, it kind of shows that he can, you know, create on his own. And he still did very well. His, his overall stat line, he had five assists in four games played. Um, it was kind of consistent, too. It was like, uh, one assist here, two assists, two assists, that kind of thing. I think he had a point in every game, so it's probably mm-hmm. one, uh, one, two, one, um, something like that. But uh, it was impressive, and it was written by multiple people, including uh, Stephen Ellis and um, uh, Chris Peters, that that Will Smith looked great. Uh, and I agree. He um, he still is kind of not like a 200 foot forward right so he's not like the best back checker or anything like that and his game is very rush focused he's just really interested in beating players one-on-one uh getting around them trying to find space and then his playmaking is just ludicrously good like he's he's really good at at, um feeding pucks through and his vision is, is fantastic and it was not just like these assists and that's all he had he had like two or three times a game where he's setting up players net front and then it just mm-hmm. didn't slide in kind of thing. 
he didn't show off like his shooting skills all that much this game it, or these games. It wasn't like he was lining up in the power play as the main shooter. Like USA has lots and lots of options at shooter. Um, but uh, yeah, his passing was really what stood out to me the most. The um, the other thing with with uh, Will Smith to bring up is that there's kind of like a little bit of competition for the number one center job for the World Junior Championship, right? Because mm-hmm. it was presumed to be Logan Cooley, right? Because Logan Cooley was going to go back to Minnesota and then two weeks ago or so decided, uh, nope, I'm going to the Coyotes and he signed his ELC. Now it's kind of expected that he's not going to be at the World Juniors this year, um, that he's going to be playing in the NHL for the Coyotes the full year and probably won't come in December, the World Juniors. So that leaves the number one center job open between like uh, Will Smith and Gauthier and Frank Nazar. Um, and uh, notably, Smith and Gauthier are going to be playing together or, uh, next year for Boston College too. So mm-hmm. it's kind of like a miniature um uh, debut of who could be the number one center for the world junior championships for this year. The Gautier has the advantage of being a year older, year more developed than Smith, but Smith mm-hmm. showed so much mm-hmm. this tournament that it's not just a, uh, a maybe anymore. It's a possibility that he is the world mm-hmm. number one center for the world juniors, which is impressive for an 18 year old. Right, right, right. And um, moving on then. Uh, so yeah, that's great to hear about a uh, uh, Will Smith. Uh, you know, there's the Sharks, obviously, uh, that's the Sharks highest pick number four. And boy, I, in, I, I, in like 20 or so years or something, right. Oh, Marlowe, right. Probably. <laughs> yeah. I think that, that, that might be one well, no, of Brad Stewart too, was, uh, I think uh, number three. So oh, anyway, sure, in, 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 in that, in that thereabouts region, um, but, mm-hmm. uh, one of his teammates there, Will Smith's teammates, uh, Team USA, uh, Quentin Musty, and a 26 pick for the Sharks in uh, this recent draft. And he was sort of the the, the star of uh, development camp. And yep. so what did you think of uh, his play in this tournament? Yeah, Musty, um, so obviously in the, the dev camp, Musty kind of actually showed out a little bit more than Smith in that, mm-hmm. uh, in that tournament, or that game, basically. Yeah, the scrimmage. Um, yeah, but that was kind of like an open, freewheeling kind of scrimmage. And that's kind of what Musty thrives on is, is rush offense. Um, he's a uh, perimeter player mostly, um, but his last game specifically was his best game, which is always good in a short tournament like this when you get better instead of getting worse. Um, he, uh, at the last game, had one goal and one assist for his two mm-hmm. points. Those were his only two points in the, the tournament, actually. Um and notably, he had the game-winning goal for for USA with like 10 seconds left. He uh, muscled somebody out in front and then and then popped in a rebound for a goal um, to win the basically the last game. It wasn't really like a gold medal game, but it had that feel of like because it was a tie game going into about to go to overtime and, mm-hmm. and USA beat beat Sweden with 10 seconds left because of Quentin Musty. Um, I thought he looked good. It wasn't like I think Smith showed better, showed more mm-hmm. skills, more diversity on his his rush patterns and his offense um, than Musty did. But Musty surprised me a bit because he was more physical in this tournament than I've seen him before, especially in in juniors. He would sometimes lag in his physicality, but this one he was like grinding out pucks in the corner. And I um, I liked his play overall. I just think his last game was really the the standout game, and the other ones he kind of faded around. Mostly played on the power play. Um, perimeter kind of play basically a hmm. uh, hot take from a development camp was that musty might start the season with the sharks what do you think 
I don't think so. <laughs> Two reasons, I guess. One yeah. is that he he doesn't have a, a contract yet for the Sharks. Sure, um, that's a good reason. So he would he would need to show so much in training camp that he have to earn a contract and then earn a spot in the NHL. Uh, it's possible anybody can can do it, but um, the second reason is I don't think he's he's really ready. He doesn't have mm. like a full two hundred foot game to play in the NHL. He's just he's really skilled forward, and and that's kind of what you you start as your base with. And then hope that the rest of everything kind of falls into place. And also, I think he needs to go back and just kill it in in the OHL and just right. Which um, yeah, I mean, he didn't necessarily do. I mean, he had a good season, but he did. There is yeah, a reason he why like, he fell a bit in the draft. Yeah, he wasn't like top ten caliber season. He mm-hmm. just had a, a pretty decent, like a good season. Just you know, there's not that two hundred foot game to really say that. You know, he wasn't like Nate Danielson where it's he had an okay season, but you can see the rest of his elements. And he was also a center that he needs mm-hmm. to be a top 10 pick kind of thing. I don't sure, think he'll sure. start with the Sharks, but he'll be fun to watch in training camp. Okay. And uh, another uh, a Team USA Sharks prospect who actually really opened eyes, surprised people, I would say, is Eric Polkamp. Polkamp was a fifth round pick in the recent draft, smaller defenseman, overager. What did you see from Eric? Yeah, that Eric Polkamp's interesting because I had watched very little of Polkamp from the USHL, and then he was drafted. I went back and watched him, and I and I realized that he's a terrific shooter first and foremost. He's got an amazing point shot for um, on the power play and also at evens. He's got a good wrist shot, good slap shot, and uh, that's kind of what thrives or drives his offense is his point mm-hmm. shot. Um, smaller guy, like five foot ten ish, five foot eleven. Um, right-handed shot. He's, he reminds me of Matthias Havlid, who is another Sharks prospect we're going to talk about in a minute. Um, I don't know if the overall puck skills are there, really, to um, say that he's going to be like a first-pairing defender, but he definitely did mm-hmm. open eyes to basically making this World Junior Championship roster. This was kind of what Camp needed to, to get in there because there's a lot of good USA defenders. Um, mm-hmm. He does come in a little bit older, which helps his chances too of making the world juniors because uh, he's an overager that got picked this year, uh, which would put him in that 2022 draft class originally, uh, mm-hmm. which is what most of the world juniors is going to be is that 2022 draft class. So that leads for it. And then also his play uh, at the champ or at the tournament kind of lends more to him making the team in, in December. Mm-hmm. Um, he notably had the point shot that went off, like was, a rocket point shot that went off the goaltender and then went to Musty who then scored it. So it was like <laughs> basically the game winner was sharks to sharks, um, right. which was all. Um, well, it sounds like the sharks scored like all the goals. It, it feels like the sharks scored all the goals in the tournament, but another uh, uh, team USA uh, uh, prospect, um, Cam Lunn and Cam Lunn, you know, shot up the sharks prospects rankings uh, last year, but he couldn't find the score sheet in this tournament. what do you see from him? Yeah, so the first game I watched, I thought Cam Lund looked good. I thought mm-hmm. he showed some uh, good rush offense. He made a few uh, passes, which I thought were interesting in the offensive zone. Notably, I didn't see him shooting a whole bunch, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of something that he has been known for in the past, which is a good. he's got a good wrist shot, he's got a good shot. Um, but yeah, he just couldn't get it going. And, and then USA kind of just jumbled lines and players would move from USA white to USA blue or, or back and forth. Those are the two split squad teams. And he just never really found his footing, I think. And he ended up with mm. no points in, in four games. Um, he wasn't that noticeable most of the times when he was on the ice, which is okay. 
sad. And sometimes that's kind of what I saw in his NCAA tape too, was that he mm-hmm. would fade essentially. Mm-hmm. So he wouldn't always be consistently pushing offense. He would just kind of fade mm-hmm. into the background a bit. So mm-hmm. still needs more work. You said uh, uh, in the early game um, that his passes were interesting. Well, what do you mean by that? I just had like a specific play in my mind that that mm-hmm. I thought about basically where he um, he he got into the zone. He went off just a little bit to the um, to the half wall and then baited the defender, passed over his stick to somebody who was coming in front, and it led mm-hmm. to a really good chance. Um, but it's just how he like baited the player to come at him and then pass mm-hmm. through him. I, I liked a lot but that was like oh, i was like oh that's lund good and that's good and then didn't and really know the rest of the game <laughs> so <laughs> okay. um yeah so it was just really that that pass was interesting and okay. that's most of what i can remember from there were some other you know chances that he got but he just wasn't very dangerous which mm, is okay. not great because he i think he was a late cut from uh world junior well, he got invited mm. to the, the world juniors for last year yeah. Um, I was like into their camp kind of thing and then got cut. Um, and I worry about his, his chances based on this tournament only, but he is older. So there's a chance that he right. makes the team just based on right. his age. Right. No, you definitely want to see, you know, year to year growth. Right. So mm-hmm. um, another, uh, another guy who shot up uh, in the Sharks prospects rankings last year, now moving on to team Sweden is uh, Philip uh, Bystead. And it sounds like he impressed, even though all of his production in this tournament was in one period of one game. Yeah. So yeah, Beastead had um he played three games. So there was a game where Beastead and Havlitt set out a game. I don't really know why. Um, mm-hmm. so instead of the four, he played three. He had three goals, all of which came in one period, the final game against <laughs> USA. Um, and his only three points. I think he might have had another assist in the first game. I think Sweden won like seven to one. Mm-hmm. And I remember watching the game and, and recognizing that he got an assist, but it wasn't. Oh, you got to let his agent know then. So, yeah, you got to get, yeah, get him. Uh... <laughs> I'll, I'll, maybe I'll go back and rewatch it and see if you really did get that point. But um, I think even though all of his points came in that last game, uh, which clearly he dominated in that period, um, I, he played well overall. Mm-hmm. The beast that is, is like a calm and basically the type of center that, that Sweden's going to want in their top two. Um, their first or their second line. Um, he's just a good 200 foot player. He's got great puck awareness. He's got great um, retrieval skills. He was really impressive with his puck protection habits uh, in this tournament too. I, I felt like, well, he's been playing against men forever, so it's not that surprising, but it's, it's a big uh, improvement from when he was playing in Swedish juniors, like just how well he can protect the puck with his frame because he's huge. Um, and how strong he's gotten. So I like that progression from Beastead a lot. And obviously, hat trick in one period is pretty cool. And uh, <laughs> but even even if he wasn't that um, productive otherwise, I thought he had Was a great turn. Um, I can't remember. I think there might have been a, a USA goal in there too. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Um, that's one of my favorite uh, hockey phrases: the natural hat trick. Hat trick is cool, but natural one. <laughs> I like natural hat trick because there's like yeah. different interpretations of it too. Some people think natural hat trick has to be same team one period only, right? And oh, then some people one, think it's one period. Okay. Yeah, some people think it has to be just in a row. Could be different periods, and then some right. people think it, it can be just if your team scores 
three, even if somebody else scores in the middle of it, it's fine. There's like all different yeah. interpretations of the natural hat trick. So I don't know where I land on them. But. <laughs> um, and funny enough, uh, uh, both of uh, Matias Havlid's uh, two points in the WJSS were to Beestead. So also in the same game and period. So what'd you see from Matias? Yeah. And, and same thing that uh, Havlid had um, shown in the, the dev camp scrimmage is that he just plays a very solid defensive game for somebody his size. Um, not a big guy, 5'10", 5'11", but he's physical enough. He can uh, get the puck off players in the boards, and he defends well enough for his size. He's never really out of position. Um, and then his offensive game, he, he can make a breakout pass, but it's not like he's crazy creative or anything like that. He's also right. not a um, not the fastest guy to like rush the puck up either. He's mostly just a shooter, and I think that's kind of going to be his way – offensively as a defenseman in the NHL, hopefully is with his shooting skills first and foremost, but overall his play felt kind of similar to beast that, and that it looked like he had played against men for a year, which he has. Um, and he, he stood out a little bit in just his solidness defensively, but yeah, he didn't put up too, too many points, just those last two points to beast that. Right. Right. Well, uh, last, but uh, not least uh, for Finland, we have a uh, uh, recent second round pick Casper uh, Halton in. And uh, what'd you see after out of Casper? Yeah. To be honest, it was kind was of he a, a ghost. <laughs> was that a good one? <laughs> he was a little bit of a ghost. Um, <laughs> Halton had been given a lot of ice time and a lot of power play time. Mm -hmm. And I think he was on the first line almost every game or mm -hmm. probably every game. Uh, as the first line right wing and got no points in the four games. And when I watched him, wasn't doing a whole lot. Like he, he does have, he competes and he, he's not like he's being lazy out there or anything like that. It's just, I think the awareness of the play around him is, is kind of lacking and he, he um, needs to figure out how to pick his shots better too. Cause he, there was multiple times when he would be, um shooting and he really needed to get it on net and he's just mm -hmm. trying to pick a corner and he shoots it goes right past the goaltender to the boards and then out the other end and that happened like multiple times when you're really can't have the, the puck leave the zone and it, it wouldn't have if he just picked his shots a little bit better he's also mm -hmm. never found a puck he didn't want to shoot so i think he needs some um some refinement on how frequently he shoots as well there's okay. just and it, it's not like, you know, it's one small tournament with a bunch sure. of players. It's just, I think because he doesn't have a whole lot of playmaking to his game already, that this can kind of happen, where if his shots aren't going in, he's going to put up zero points. Whereas mm. in the world under 18s, he was on fire um, offensively. It's just can kind of go through these streaks, but needs more time for sure. Okay. Uh, finally, uh, to close off, I'm going to put you on a spot here, Keegan. Rank mm -hmm. all seven of these sharks prospects at the World Junior Show uh, Summer Showcase. Rank them uh, uh, seven, one seven. seven through one. Yeah, no, other way around. Let's uh, let's have some suspense. So yeah, seven through one. Um, I would say Halton. It would be seven. Okay. Um, I say Lund would be six. Okay. I think Lund just showed a little bit more. I think his was more him you know, being down the lineup rather than I think Halton because he was given the top spot and. Mm -hmm couldn't really produce it. It didn't impress as much as Lund who wasn't given a good spot and then still tried, just couldn't get anything going. Sure. Um, after that, probably Havlid. Mm. Uh, not that he was bad, just that he was solid overall. Um, then 
Um, let's go Musty. I think okay. Musty next. I think he had a good last game, but it wasn't like he dominated every game. There was a couple games where he didn't really do a whole lot. The other USA forwards that are super, super good were, were dominating the score sheet. Uh, Eric um, Polkamp uh, moving up the charts like a bullet. <laughs> yeah, Eric Polkamp probably would have been the next one, to be honest, okay. just at this tournament, right? Um, uh, yeah, or the, the showcase. Um, because, it, you know, he did open a lot of people's eyes. He put up three points in four games. He... Um, was active, engaged, and I think he's he's got a real shot to make the team. Um, second would be Bstat because I liked just I think Bstat's going to be Sweden's top two centers for the World Juniors, and um, I just like his two hundred foot game. And uh, you know when the the team really needs that kind of player, he's one of the only ones that Sweden's got to do it. So uh, he would be two, and then Smith would be one because okay. Smith was was excellent every game it, it he needs to um you know work on his 200 foot game but his his playmaking was a standout every game and he could have put out like maybe double the amount of points that he had because he was really flying out there you were saying uh uh before we recorded that you thought that smith was a top three usa player is that uh, uh about right for you or? yeah i would say so i liked frank nazar's game a lot um, he wasn't, he wasn't always consistent and he, I don't think he put up as many points as Smith, uh, cutter Gauthier stood out really well too. Um, yeah, probably in the top three, but it's hard because I mostly watched the, the split squad that had Smith and Lund and Musty and I didn't really mm. watch the other one that uh, much. So okay. it's hard for me to tell exactly. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, um, before uh, we uh, get to our uh, Alan McCauley interview, it's uh, great stuff. Uh, you want to check it out. I just wanted to uh, shout out uh, uh, Keegan. Uh, you guys probably already know, but he does great prospects work. He does it uh, uh, mostly on his website, uh, uh, half-wallhockey.com. He also has some stuff at San Jose Hockey Now. Uh, but right now, though, uh, Keegan is doing a top 20 Sharks prospects list, summer uh, his, his own summer showcase. And uh, <laughs> he's already has the honor, honorable mentions up. And I think just today uh, released uh, uh, prospects 20 through 16. And yep. so, yeah, uh, go to uh, half-wallhockey.com and see the rest of uh, Keegan's rankings. Yep. And um, the it should be pretty much weekly from here on out. So there'll be three more articles out. And um, uh, yeah, thanks, thanks guys for reading. Thank you, Shang, for for talking about it. <laughs> um, I hope you guys enjoyed the uh, Alan McCauley interview. We're gonna get to uh, in just a bit. Got anything else, Shang? Nope. That's that's it. All right. I hope you guys have a good week. Alan McCauley is one of the great underrated Sharks. After playing five seasons for Toronto, he was traded to San Jose in 2003 in a deal that sent Shark star Owen Nolan to Toronto. He was part of two playoff runs for San Jose, including in 2004 when the Sharks made the Western Conference Finals for the first time in their history. In 2004, he was also the second Shark and only Shark for now um, to be a Silk finalist. After retiring in 2007, McCauley has been a professional scout for the LA Kings and Philadelphia Flyers for over a decade, from 2009 to 2022. Last year, he was the director of player or player personnel for the Flyers, and next year will serve as the Flyers' assistant general manager. He joins us today to talk all about his experiences on the Sharks and the changes occurring with Philadelphia and their rebuild. Welcome to the show, Alan. Excellent. Thank you for having me. 
Uh, Alan, I wanted to uh, start off here first. Uh, you were uh, drafted actually by the Devils in the fourth round in 1995, but you never played there. And uh, you were traded to Toronto for Doug Gilmore in 1997. I had to ask you, I mean, Doug Gilmore, uh, franchise icon in Toronto, and also obviously Toronto, all the media attention there. Was it ever tough getting traded there for Doug Gilmore? Uh, <clears throat> yeah, very much so. Um and uh, I'm from a small town called Gananoque, which is about 20 minutes away from Kingston. And uh, Doug is the, you know, uh, front and center, the pride of Kingston uh, oh, because okay. of all his, yeah, his <laughs> hockey uh, accomplishments. And uh, so, yeah, it was very um, exciting uh, to get traded for, for Doug. Uh, thankfully, there were a couple other players in the trade to kind of, uh, you know, share the burden of... Uh, <laughs> of uh, the expectations uh, in getting traded for Doug and, and Dave Ellett was the other uh, player that went to the Devils and then myself, Stevie Sullivan and uh, Jason Smith, who actually coaches uh, for our team in, in, in Lehigh, um, uh, came the other the other direction. And, and my first game against New Jersey, um, my first shift was against Doug. Really? Doug, yeah. And uh, Doug won the faceoff and then snuck by me and tipped one home. So it was a <laughs> heck of a start and probably one of my worst games. Um, but uh, but I was very thankful to uh, to get drafted. That year that I got drafted to uh, New Jersey uh, was the year that they won the Stanley Cup. And um, so it was a great Kind of, it was a great team uh, to go to training camps with, and and you know be around the Martin Roders and Scotty Stevens mm -hmm. and, and Scott Niedermeyer's and and Bobby Holik and, and the list goes on. But um, and to tie it into something recently, I was at the uh, draft in Nashville and and uh, waiting for my Starbucks, and then who walks in but uh, Lou Lamorello? And uh, <laughs> I have uh, everyone, you know, kind of is in awe and maybe rightfully so of of Lou and and. Uh, uh, I haven't spoken to him really, I don't think, since I was traded. And I, I just was like, felt the urge to go up and I introduced myself and we had a nice little chat and and uh, just told him how thankful I was to kind of go into that environment that uh, they had in New Jersey. And I always felt like it played a, a, a you know, uh, made a positive impact mm -hmm. in, in, uh, in my hockey career. Uh, that uh, game, uh, first game against the Devils, was that in Toronto also? Yep. Oh, and, no. Uh, unfortunately, so, yes. <laughs> a lot of friends and family. <laughs> yes, always. Uh, that was the one nice thing of being in, in Toronto was, uh, you know, it was only about two and a half hours away from my hometown. And so, yeah, lots of uh, friends and lots of love and support uh, for my years in, in Toronto. Uh, you know, did, did uh, getting traded for a guy like a Doug Gilmore, um, I, I didn't realize that he also was a hometown hero too. So that's another layer due to, to that. But did I get, make it much easier that when you're traded again a few years later uh, for Owen Nolan to the Sharks, another franchise cornerstone there. But of course, the media attention in San Jose is not quite, you know, Toronto. Yeah, no, uh, absolutely. I, I think what helped uh, that time around uh because it wasn't the same kind of trade there was uh a pick uh mm -hmm. involved brad boys who was mm -hmm. a prospect and right. myself uh, so i was the only player but there was a lot of transition at that time and and so i came in at the same time as uh i'm trying to think like wayne primo um uh, i'm trying to remember the players that were traded at that time but i know there was a, like an influx of 
um, of guys from underneath, like right. Chichi was uh, starting to establish himself as, as an NHL player and Jimmy Fahey mm-hmm. and, and Dimitrakos. And anyway, there's, there's a lot of change going on. So I never really felt um, that much pressure and we're trying to, or the Sharks were trying to uh, reestablish themselves. They had a good year, I think the year before, and then yeah, had a really they, down year and, and that led to, yep. to Owen being traded. And, and um, it was, it was interesting because I w- went from Toronto where I was one of the young players to the Sharks where I was one of the more veteran players. It, like, <laughs> you know, within a few days, I had that, uh, th- that dynamic, change for me uh going to the dressing room and here are guys looking somewhat up to me um <laughs> because i've got experience in the league uh, versus toronto where you know i was probably the third youngest guy in the, in the room um so yeah it was very very different uh change that way but like i said i i think because of all the moving parts that were going on at that time it made uh i didn't feel the pressure and, and i never thought that i was going to you know, fill the skates of, of Owen Owen anyway. Sure, sure. <laughs> so, well, the 2003-04 season was probably your best NHL season, and the, the Sharks had a great run. They made the conference finals that year, and you were a self-finalist. Um, about that team, what made the 2003-04 Sharks special? I think you got into it a little bit, but... Yeah, no, I mean, we had uh, we had a great young group of players uh for sure um we certainly had some great chemistry um both on and off the ice uh we had some terrific veteran players Vinny Domfu, scotty thornton mike ricci uh mike rathji um you know nabby we had like <laughs> it's crazy to say this but i mean or to think back on it but we had you know nabby and net uh backup was tosca and we more or less gave away Kiprasov, who ended our season that year, uh, ironically. Um, Sharks fans remember. <laughs> yes, I'm sure they don't forget that. Um, I certainly don't. Uh, but, yeah, it was just uh, I, a couple things, I guess, stood out about that group. One was kind of the chemistry that we had. We just – there was a good vibe about, about our group. There was nobody that was, um, you know – everybody kind of had a temp team mentality like uh you know patty marlowe was i don't even know if i'd argue it was our most talented player but he's a very you know humble modest guy uh easy to get along with great sense of humor um so there was no real rub in the room um uh, and then you know like i said todd harvey mike Re- uh, ricci rathji all those veteran guys were were terrific people um and um and but I, I do remember one instance early in the season where we were we we're kind of stumbling a little bit, and it was in Tampa. And I again, ironically, Tampa goes on to win the Stanley Cup, but we got spanked and and beaten uh, easily by them uh, in their building. And we had a players only meeting the following day. And sometimes the players only meetings get blown out of proportion and mm-hmm. how important they are. But that year, um, we kind of made a I don't know. Uh, a promise to each other that like we're not going to lose another uh we're not going to lose two games uh you know back to back for the rest of the year i don't know why but it it seemed to hold true uh and we we kind of as a group had that mentality that like if we lost the game we uh, we upped our focus and our compete and everything else as a group the next game and um 
I don't know, that mentality just kind of served us well the rest of the year. Um, and, uh, yeah, we had, we had good, talented young players, um, you know, with a, with a great, uh, supportive veteran uh, cast behind and, uh, or with, uh, and, uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun, uh, to play that year. And then, uh, um, you know, we had other things both individually and as a team that, uh, to change the following years. Right, right. You know, uh, you you mentioned that uh, story before about the 2003-04 team and that kind of pledge you guys made. And you guys didn't lose, uh, I think, uh, two games in a row until I think February or something like that. I, I looked that up. And anyway, I wonder, though, like what gave you guys that confidence that you could pull off that pledge? I mean, I feel like teams make these kind of promises or packs early in the season all the time when you're struggling, <laughs> but, but was it something that, you know, once you kind of make this, this, this promise to each other that you guys just kept winning and that starts to build the confidence or was there something that beforehand that you guys just sort of, you know, knew that, that you guys were maybe better than your record? Yeah. I, I mean, I can't necessarily put my finger on exactly why it held true or, or why we were able to kind of, uh, you know, individually or as a group, I guess, uh, you know, hold up our, our each end of the bargain. But um, yeah, it just seemed like, you know, uh, when we lost when the next game, I think we uh, put together a string of a few wins after that. And then when we did lose, it just, yeah, I don't know why we we're able to kind of harness that focus and, and compete and, and bring it um, and honor that pledge to each other. But um, it, it did seem like, um, that it was an honest pledge to, to one another. And, and, uh, and I guess we, we held each other accountable that way. And, uh, obviously you're, uh, uh, assistant general manager right now, you're very interested in team building, um, that 2003 sharks team underdog team, very little was expected uh, from them, uh, at the beginning of the season. So what sort of, you know, maybe, elements of team building did you kind of pick up from that 2003-04 team that can apply to you know any team uh in general yeah i i think um certainly surrounding your your group with the right kind of veteran presence and players is 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 key uh whether it be you know currently for me anyway for you know the flyers or the phantoms um uh, having that those right kind of guys that with their experience and, and right personalities can, can go a long way. Um, and I think, um, you know, the, the 0405 group that we had, it took some time because there's a few players that we moved on from and, and it, it really changed the, uh, the room chemistry, um, mm -hmm. you know, and, 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 and so I think you gotta be careful sometimes in, in, in downplaying what those guys bring, even though, you know, they're on the back nine, if you will, of their career. Um, they still offer a lot in the room. And, and when things go awry or, or it's not going smoothly as seasons are long and tend, that tends to happen at times, um, they kind of, you know, they, they've been through it. So they, they, they know how to settle the, uh, you know, settle the ship and, 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 and get it back on course. And uh uh, yeah, so that would certainly be one thing that that I would have taken from that uh, that 03, 04 year. Uh, I guess I've probably mentioned it in a few different ways now, but uh, <laughs> uh, you know, some of those players we moved on from 
the next season, uh, I think it took some time for us to kind of figure out, okay, who's when things don't go as planned, who do we, who do we lean on? And, uh, maybe that was, maybe I was one of those guys, but, um, mm -hmm. you know, at the time I still thought I was pretty young, you know, even though my career was over shortly after that. Yeah. Shang, you're muted. Uh, what was also additionally tough too was that there was a, a, a lockout that year. Like the entire 2004-05 season, you know, went up in smoke. And yeah. so you guys were coming off a Western Conference final, and you know that must have you know really kind of taken you guys off your kind of momentum that that you guys were on too. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I'm referencing 0405 when I should be 0506. But um, as far as that group and how it changed um you know like for my line uh we had a lot of chemistry uh myself and neil zackman and, and alex korliak and, and uh alex didn't come back uh in 0506 um and it was it was difficult um i played the entire season injured um not to you know uh Crimea River, but uh, it was it was a difficult season individually um, or physically, and or both, and uh, and and the fact that you know our whole line wasn't back, it was just it, it, yeah, it, it didn't seem uh, for a few reasons, and and certainly the 0405 season being uh, canceled uh, sure. did not help us you know carry that momentum forward. And, and going back to the 2003-2004 season, what do you think for yourself came together that season for your play specifically? Um, well, certainly the two guys I played with helped a, a great deal. Um, you know, Alex, both those players were smart players. Uh, we read off each other quite well. Um, you could see the chemistry. I could feel the chemistry in, in, uh, in practice, uh, which carried over the games. Um Probably, to be honest with myself, it was between my ears where I kind of, you know, had a mantra that uh, of being better or the best that I could be as I trained through the summer. And then that carried forward and, and a few things fell in place and more opportunity. And, and uh, you know, maybe maybe there was the aspect of, of not being under the microscope as much. Uh, mm -hmm. in, in San Jose as I was in, in Toronto. I mean, that's just the nature of the beast in Toronto, whether you're, you know, <laughs> someone that plays in the fourth line or someone that plays in the first line. Um, you know, there's a lot of a lot of attention that goes around that team and it's not good or bad or whatever. It's just, it, it is. Um, and uh, so, you know, there, there might've been some of that that played into it that kind of um, ease tension within me um that allowed me to kind of play my game uh but yeah there are, i'm sure there are many factors um but uh yeah I, I certainly enjoy the group that i was playing with and and the environment that uh the sharks uh had in, in the uh i don't even remember what it was called back then sap center or Compact or, Center, maybe. Yeah. HP uh, Pavilion. Yeah, I just, yes, you're right. San Jose Arena, maybe. And, uh, mm -hmm. That was the first HP game. Pavilion, you're 100% right. I'm trying to remember, actually, the practice facility the other day. I was talking to to Wayne Primo, and it it uh, eventually came back to me, the Logitech, Logitech uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, whatever, Iceplex or whatever it's called. 
Just look at your laptop or look at your mouse, and you yeah, can, you the know, early two thousands text guess. boom, right? <laughs> yeah, when when the practice facility was like two arenas, and now it's I think six or something. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, speaking of uh, uh, Coral Yuka, he is one of the sort of one of the great lost sharks. Uh, after that 2003-04 season, he went back to to Russia. Um, I don't think uh, I actually think he might have been traded to the Devils, and there was some talk he might come back, but he never came back. You know why? I don't know if you keep in touch with him. Like, you know why he chose to stay uh, in, in in Russia after that? Yeah, I I just think uh, Alex and his family were you know most comfortable back home and and uh you know as, as much as it was difficult from you know say a personal standpoint or even a team standpoint to not have him there when he was such a an integral part of our success in 0304 um you know i can respect that that it's uh you know if i had been playing over in russia that you know uh it there would have been a real uh, pull to go back home. Um, sure. and, uh, I assume that the whole season being canceled in 0405 gave him the opportunity to, uh, you know, experience, uh, life back in Russia and, and friends and all that, uh, you know, just kind of get it, get out of the routine of what the NHL and, and North American hockey was to him. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he made those connections back there and, and wasn't, willing to come, come, come back uh, from that. So it was, it was difficult. Uh, I haven't stayed in touch uh, since then. Um, but uh, I do remember having some conversations with him uh, in 0506 or leading up to 0506. Right. Cause I knew that it was a possibility that he wasn't going to return. And um, like I said, it would, I wanted him to come back, but could certainly respect the decision that he was making. Of course, of course. And another thing that's striking about that 2003-04 season is, you know, for yourself, right, we talk about what came together for you. Throughout the season, you kept getting more and more responsibility. I think uh, from January 1st um, of that season, your ice time was second only to Marlowe among team forwards, which that's not how the season started. And Mm -hmm. this coincided with uh, Vinny Danfus. Uh, who uh, that was actually his last season. You know, he was 36. He had had an amazing career, won a Stanley Cup with the Canadians in 93. And so you talk about sort of that leadership. You know, how did uh, Vinny accept sort of that transition uh, in, in his career? Well, that season anyway, I thought that uh, Vinny was excellent. Uh, mm-hmm. any, any of my experiences with Vinny was, were terrific, actually. I mean, uh, uh, I found him very down to earth. He was, uh, he did want the puck on his stick for sure. Uh, regardless of how old he was, um, you know, he, he could still make plays. He was still very effective on the power play. Um, and, uh, yeah, for, for a guy that was, you know, had the experience and the clout that, that Vinny brought with him, right. there wasn't, there wasn't really an ego to him. Mm. Um, mm. you know, I think he was a confident guy for sure. Um, but as far as inter- his interactions with uh, with the players, you didn't feel like, hey, there's a 36 year old in the room, or I can't remember how old he, he was in probably his mid 30s when when we played together. Um, but uh, but no, he's just one of the guys, and and uh, I felt like he was handling the transition quite well, and and uh, I do think it was it was uh, tough to lose him the, the following year. Yeah, and the um, other. 
uh, leaders on that team. Uh, the Sharks had rotating captains between you, Patrick Marlowe, Mike Ricci, and Scott Thornton. Um, so why did you tell Ron Wilson to make Marlowe the captain? Uh, I just felt like if for Patty's uh, growth as a player that it was uh, an important step and probably the right time for it. Um, mm -hmm. I also felt like it was uh, it was going to benefit us um, as a group that way that, uh, you know, give him more responsibility yet, you know, shared responsibility. It wasn't like, okay, I don't, uh, it wasn't like I didn't want the C, uh, I took <laughs> great pride and in, in honor and wearing this, the captaincy. Um, I didn't feel like I needed to have it on, uh, my Jersey. Um, and, uh, yeah, I don't. Uh, I don't really regret it. I mean, I, I enjoyed wearing uh, the C on my jersey for the opportunities that I was given, um, and uh, yeah, I don't. Was I was I right or wrong? I don't know. Um, but uh, you know, those were kind of the the reasons behind my my choices. Oh, we've talked before about how Patrick Marlowe reminds you of uh, Matt Sundin, actually, who he played with in Toronto, uh, consummate pro who has been, you know, uh, blasted by some for not winning a Stanley Cup and seeing the uh, Patty in the playoffs yourself. And I know you think it's unfair. Why do you think that it's unfair for a guy like Patty and Matt to have to deal with that? Well, I just always felt like uh, for Patty anyway, that that. The, the number of suggested he produced um, mm -hmm. at, at in the most important time of the year. Um, uh, the fact that the team doesn't win, and this is where I'd make the comparison to the two guys, is that the fact that the team, you know, didn't get to the promised land or didn't win a, a cup shouldn't just fall on their shoulders. I understand okay. that because of their stature, you know, and, and their, for what it's worth, it, 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 hockey players don't think this way, but uh, their contract status mm. um, that they should deliver. Um, but, you know, we all know that it's a team sport and uh, it doesn't just hinge on, you know, did Patty score enough goals for the Sharks to win or did Matt's, you know, make enough plays for the Leafs to win. Um, I always felt like those guys were uh, over-criticized um, for – you know, the team's inability to succeed. And uh, yeah, I just, I didn't think it was justified. I, I felt like they held up their end of the bargain. And, um, and I know sometimes you get down and you, you lose game seven and somebody's minus three and, and you, you put all your, all the weight of your criticism and, and, and based upon one game. Mm. Um, and um yeah, I don't, I mean, again, am I right or wrong? I don't know, but that's uh, certainly why I would, uh, you know, I, I hold both of those players in, in great regard, and um, I'm sure they'll, you know, both be in the uh, Hall of Fame, one is, and, uh, you know, I'm sure Patty deserves to be there at some point. And anyone who can uh, criticizes Patrick didn't have to face Mika Kiprasov in 2000 in the 2004 playoffs. <laughs> so just how good was was Mika? Because you look at those numbers. I mean, those are just you know those are those. He just was astounding that year, right? He was. Uh, he was when I, and I didn't spend a lot of time with with Mika sure. uh, uh, as a shark because um, he was our third kind of our third string guy. But what I would say is that there were a few times in. 
practice. Uh, so what would happen is Vesa and, and Nabi would go out and practice. And then after practice, uh, Mika would come on, uh, you know, Kipper would come on and then face shots and, and uh, which I'm sure wasn't incredibly enjoyable for him. But mm-hmm. what I was going to say is that he, there'd be times when you, you know, do these um, shooting drills with him uh, through the goalie coach. And he, uh, he wouldn't let in anything. It's just like he made his mind up, like, you're not going to score. And it was very similar to a goalie that I played with in, in Toronto and, and Curtis Joseph. Oh. And uh, some practices, Cooch could care less about, not, I shouldn't say care less, but it, it was a different level of Cujo. Sure. And then there were mm-hmm. times in practice where it was like, okay, this is all-star Cujo. And he's going <laughs> to yeah. stop everything. Yeah. Um, and so Kipper had that ability and that's what you saw in that, that run that they had was, uh, you know, him at his, his peakers is best. And I don't know how many goals he scored in that series, but he was incredibly hard to, uh, to get anything past, uh, Mika and, and a lot of the games, unfortunately at home for us that in that series, I think we went down two goals in every, in, in each of the three games we had at home and, uh, we lost all of them. We happened to go into to Calgary and win two and even up the series. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was a tall task to come back uh, after going down uh, 0-2 to them. And uh, moving forward to uh, the next season, uh, what do you remember about the night that the Sharks traded for Joe Thornton? Um, well, it was, a, it was a real tough stretch for us. And uh, I don't know why we couldn't win. Um, we had, like, I remember a game in that stretch where we lost to Detroit at home and I don't know how many leads we had in the game that we ended up losing. I think it was seven, six, uh, Shanahan scored in overtime to, to extend our losing streak or winless, uh, streak slump. And, um, we played, uh, where were we? We were actually, we were in Dallas. Mm-hmm. Um, we were getting ready for the game. I think we'd taken warm up. It was in that range anyway. Yeah. Guys were getting ready. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, um, a few players get pulled out. Right. Well, uh, so I think it would have been Sturm. Yeah, uh, Primo. Primo yeah. and Stewart. Stewart. So we lost like Stewart. three players who were going to be in that game <laughs> that are now out of the game. Um, and we we're pulling guys out of the press box to uh, probably with half a hot dog. Yeah, Fahey and Dimitrakos. Yeah, they yeah. talked about having like pot roast or something or prime rib. I think. Yeah, I think it might have been hot dogs. <laughs> yeah, they and were, hot dogs uh, too, actually. <laughs> they, I, I don't think they were quite prepared for the game. But anyway, um, and... Uh, so yeah, it was, a, it was certainly a big news and a, and a big deal. Um, I'd played with Joe, uh, I rolled juniors, uh, but that was, mm. you know, many years prior to that. Um, he was a well-established, um, all-star in the league. So it was big, big news, a big change for us. Um, and the other thing I will say is that we, um, um, uh, when we brought Joe in, uh, we played Dallas that night. I scored. And uh, I don't, can't tell you what game that was of the season, but myself and Jonathan Chichu had seven goals mm-hmm. at that point. Uh, Jonathan went on to win the <laughs> Rocket Richard, and I ended up with 12 goals on the year. So uh, we Let me do the math here. I think, I think Jonathan scored 49 more goals that year, and he <laughs> <Nice>. scored. <laughs> yeah. I, I won't yeah. say it. I won't say it, Alan. Yeah, it was, uh, it was, uh, but anyway, it was, it was great. I mean, it was, it was fun to watch. I, I, you know, love Cheech and, 
we got along fabulously uh, on and off the ice and, and was very happy for him that he had that success. But <laughs> but to draw the comparison to uh, us, uh, yeah, he uh, he took off like a rocket ship and I went in the other direction or I flatlined. <laughs> And uh, have you ever seen a player quite on fire like Jumbo was in 2005 or six, or even Chichu yet? Yeah, no, it was remarkable. I mean, it just felt like if Cheech got one goal, he's probably going to get three. Mm-hmm. Like there are so many nights where he just got like, and then it was chance after chance after chance. And, uh, you know, Jumbo, incredible playmaker and see the ice and, and hold guys off and, 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 you know, uh, create chances himself. Um, yeah, he was just an elite offensive talent for such a long time. And, and uh, that year, you know, uh, a setup, man, it was kind of like, you know, um, Oates and Hull or, you know, yeah. whatever you want, whoever yeah. you want to pick out of, uh, uh, as far as a setup man and a, and a, and a trigger man, uh, you know, Backstrom and Ovi and, and uh, yep. they were just on a, on a different level uh, that year. And you had um, defended against both Marlowe and Thornton in practice and on other teams as well. Who was tougher for you to handle defensively? Um, good question. Um, if I would say this, if it was on the rush, Patty, uh, mm-hmm. he, his, if, you know, the efficiency that he skated with was, uh, you know, Niedermeyer pick out some of the best skaters in the world. He just, he had that, incredible glide to him. Um, mm-hmm. and he didn't necessarily look like he was going as fast as he was all the time. Um, yeah. and then jumbo was like, was down low. Uh, if he got the puck below the tops of the cert, well, hash marks, um, he, he had an innate ability to just, you know, while well, his size was, was a great, uh, attribute and strength of his to hold guys off and see the entire ice, um, great patience and, he just seemed to be able to find whatever hole there was to um, lay a pass into an area, you know, um, and all the, all the great players, I think have that, that sixth sense or the elite sense to them. And that's why they, they stand out and that's why they're able to create. And, 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 you know, some of the young players today that are being drafted, high that's usually what separates them is is their their sense for the game and and uh you know i only played a little while against gretzky but um he had it that's uh that's what separated him from from just about everybody else in the game i gotta ask you one uh question about jumbo as a teenager uh, i i've learned that uh jumbo as a teenager uh, he was a great uh shoe checker and if, for those of you who don't know, shoe checking is a ritual uh, that goes on uh, when a hockey team is gathered around a team table. Some guy will sneak under the table and put ketchup all over everybody else's shoes without getting caught. And so I wonder uh, if, if Jumbo pulled that uh, off on you guys uh, when you guys were, were, to, were playing together at the World Juniors. Yeah, not not to my knowledge. Um, <laughs> I wasn't somebody that was... Uh... Uh, involves a great deal on either side of that uh, that prank, um, <laughs> and it would surprise me a little bit because Joe's so big. Um, right. uh, and usually, as far as the shoe checking goes, what I would typically remember are the guys that were the targets. Mm. Um, <laughs> I always felt like there were repeat victims. Yeah, um, right or wrong, or or for different reasons for the guys that I'm thinking of anyway. Um, 
yeah, some guys got chosen a little more often than others. <laughs> Maybe based on their reaction to it. Yes. You, you always need to be careful on how you react because if somebody uh, senses that they're getting under your skin or they're right. getting one up on you, then yeah, you're, you're probably getting it done another <clears throat> a second or third time as well. No, you seem like the cool and collected type. So, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I I have some Irish blood in me, so it, it can get a little fiery at times. But <laughs> I, I try to keep it together as best I can. So uh, after the 2506 uh, a season, uh, you signed with the LA Kings for uh, three years, but you only play ten games in LA because of uh, knee injuries, and those would those ten games would be the last kind of uh, games of your NHL career, unfortunately. Uh, when did the knee trouble start for you? They actually started just prior to uh, the 0506 training camp. Mm. Um, I started because we were kind of up in the air whether we're actually going to have a season in 0506, and then things came uh, quickly as, as far as the CBA went uh, with the league and um, or between the league and the players. Mm -hmm. And uh and then I started training and about, I don't know, maybe the second week of August or so, um, I was doing some, some, uh, work at the track and, uh, I noticed a little bit of swelling in my, my left knee and I thought, okay, that's weird. That's never happened before. And then it subsided. Um, so that, okay, we're, I'm good to go. And then I started to, you know, my training up again and it started again. Um, and it, um, it, it still happens to this day. I've had five knee surgeries and, uh, for whatever reason, the way my body reacts, um, uh, with this worn down cartilage is it, it swells up. And, uh, anyway, um, yeah, it was, uh, uh quite unfortunate. Uh, I thought I was going to have, um, you know, probably another five, six, seven years mm. in the, in the league and was hopeful that it would be in San Jose. And then, you know, uh, uh that, uh, wasn't a possibility. And so I signed in, in LA and, and, uh, you know, uh, unfortunately for, for them, I guess, as well as me, uh, it only lasted 10 games and, and, uh, but that's, uh, just the way it goes. Um, that's what life had scripted up for me and, and, uh, and I dealt with it, but it was, uh, yeah, it was a real challenging year than 0506. I had a lot of swelling in my knee and, and a lot of discomfort and, uh, there wasn't a whole lot I could do about it, um, in season. And, uh, yeah, uh, it uh, was the beginning of the end. Well, so there's a good reason why Jonathan Chichu scored 49 more goals than you then. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I, I, I'm sure it had more to do with, the, uh, than, than just my knee, but, uh, uh, but yeah, no, it was, uh, it was a challenging year on a number of levels and, uh, yeah, I, I always wish that uh, my Sharks time had, had been longer. Um, you know, fans were terrific. I love, I love the area. Um, took my son back uh, last uh, or this spring, actually. Um, he was born a, in San Jose, right? Correct. Yeah, yeah. and uh, so that was part of the reason that we went back to San Jose, or I took him to San Jose. Uh, took in a few Sharks games. Uh, went to Barracuda a couple mm -hmm. of times, and. Uh, yeah, it was uh, you know, still have friends there uh, that we made during our time. And, and uh, anyway, it's it's, uh, it's water under the bridge now. But uh, yeah, I certainly was hopeful at the time that uh, that I was going to have another you know five, six, seven years in, in San Jose. And it just wasn't meant to be.
Uh, speaking of some of those friends, who were uh, or who are still some of your good friends from uh, those Sharks teams? Uh, well, yeah, uh, I just met people from the area, from mm -hmm. in the neighborhood. Uh, oh, okay, yeah, uh, yeah, okay. Michelle and and uh, Chris Peacock, or um, uh, I think I'll, um, you know, season ticket holders. Um, sure. you know, we got to sit with them uh, last year when we went to. Uh, who did they play? Seattle was the one game because that's my my son's favorite team. Uh, don't ask me why. Uh, and it's the uh, logo. It's the yeah, deal. Well, I, yeah, he's he's just never been a fan of any of the teams. He's just always kind of supported who I was connected with, mm -hmm. and then when they came in, he decided to go there. Anyway, um, uh, Columbus was the other game. I think they both went into overtime. If, mm -hmm. They were actually entertaining, exciting games. And oh, yeah, uh, it was the end of the season. That was like in March. Correct. About, yeah. Right? yeah, yeah, yep. yeah, sure. Yeah, end of March or early April, whenever yeah. it was. And and uh, um, yeah, so it's uh, San Jose is always going to kind of be a little bit of a home away from home. And my wife would have uh, easily, gladly uh, uh, retired there. Uh, just for yourself, was it sort of tough to sort of um, at any point, you know, come to grips with just, you know, how great your career could have been? I mean, again, you know, you were a Selkie finalist uh, in 2004. I think you were like 25, 26. You could have well been, you know, for the next decade, you know, in that conversation. And so is that was that tough to deal, uh, tough for you to deal with, uh, you know, uh, as your career was winding down there? Uh Yes, to be honest, yes. Um, it was. It felt like you know. I kind of worked along, established myself, mm -hmm. got traded to San Jose, and then my career kind of took off, and then right. you know went off a cliff um, shortly thereafter. And um, yeah, uh, there's there's nothing anybody could do or or you know the, to change it. It just the way my body was, and and um, you know the the fate that I was set to have um uh, but was it easy to accept um no 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 player um really wants to accept the the end of their career or or um that their their game is falling off or or you know i guess in some respects it made it easier because it was somewhat out of my hands i couldn't mm. i couldn't play anymore i i, I just physically yep. couldn't do it um like i've i really haven't put the skates on very often as far as playing games, uh, since I retired, um, I helped coach and, um, but that wasn't much stress on my knee really. Um, uh, just kind of walking around or slowly skating around the ice and barking drills at kids. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, there's only been a few times where I've gotten involved in a charity game here mm. and there. And, uh, yeah, usually I, I pay the price for a few weeks. So yeah, it's, uh, yeah, at, at the time it was, it was a real challenge. Um, because you don't, like I said, you don't want to accept it, but uh, there was nothing that was going to change that. Well, Alan, uh, thank you uh, so much for your time. Uh, we've got just a few more questions for you here. Sure. Your time. Okay. Yeah. yeah. No, awesome. Good. Awesome. Well, uh, one that actually about, a. Dean Lombardi's impact on your career. You know, I can't help but notice that he traded for you in 2003. He signed you to the Kings in 2006. And then he hired you for your first NHL scouting job with the Kings in 2009. And also, too, uh, he might have also, he was in the Flyers front office as a consultant when you joined the Flyers in 2017. And so can you talk about that? Certainly. Um, I know Dean loved 
uh, loves or likes nothing better than guys, uh, you know, blowing smoke up as, uh, you know, <laughs> and uh, he's, uh, yeah, no, I've got a lot of admiration and respect for, for Dean and, and a great deal of appreciation too, for, you know, what he's done for me, given to me uh, over the course of my career. Um, yeah. It, it, oddly enough, when he traded for me, he was only there probably another 48 hours right. ago. <laughs> But, um, but at the same time, he was, um, you know, the main cog in that wheel to, to make that happen, that, to, that I ended up as a San Jose Shark. Um, I've learned a lot on this side of the equation uh, because of Dean. Um, he's opened doors. He's educated me in a, in a number of ways. Um, he's always a very uh, thorough and thoughtful and analytical thinker. Um, and, uh, you know, he's always pushed me to... Uh, you know, strive for more, whether it be my playing days or, or beyond. And um, yeah, I've, I'm very, very thankful for, for, you know, uh, my connection to Dean and, and what it's meant. I mean, uh, two Stanley Cups and many uh, opportunities. I'm still involved in the game. Um, he's a great sounding board. He's, uh, you know, still educating me on, on a variety of things. Um which I'm uh, uh, always happy to to listen to Dean and and, uh, and hear his thoughts on on the game and and uh, where we're missing out. Um, he's been involved in the game for a very very long time and and uh, in a few different roles. And uh, yeah, I always appreciate whatever whatever he wants to um, offer me. Uh, I'm all ears, and uh, as I said before. I'm <clears throat> incredibly uh, grateful and uh, indebted to uh, to Dean for for everything that he's uh, done for me in the game. I uh, wondering, uh, you mentioned the Cups and uh, Kings won 2012-2014. You were a scout then. Did you get days with the Cup? I did. Um, I actually was just having a conversation this morning. I saw the Vegas, uh, one of the Vegas scouts uh, in the uh, in the breakfast area and uh, and I know he's got his day planned and, um, you know, on this side of the equation, it's, uh, there's a lot of uh, solo travel. There's a lot of time taken away from your family and, um, and a lot of people, you know, do it and, and don't have the opportunity to kind of, I wouldn't say re repay, but, but have that opportunity to share it with their family, uh, like the, having the cup offers. Um, and, um, uh, yeah, it was, uh, you know, two of the probably most special days I've had uh, involved in the game were, was when I had the, the cup in my hometown and was able to share it with uh, uh, kids around the area. Um, the uh, fire department, the, the police department, um, the old school that I, I went to, uh, an elementary school that I went to, um, uh, and, and both times, you know, was very lucky to to have those experiences and, and have my kids around, um, uh, especially the second time, even though it was two years later. I mean, my son was a little bit older and mm. a little bit more understanding of, of what the cup meant. And, and uh, yeah, very, very special days and uh, very thankful that uh, that the team made that happen because, as I say, the, 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 the family sacrifices a great deal uh, on this side of the equation and, and um to kind of incorporate, um, you know, those sacrifices with 
with with a day with a cup or a half day with a cup was uh, uh, something that that everyone strives for, and and I was lucky enough to achieve or experience. And you're you're now the AGM of the Flyers. This is after over a decade as a pro scout for the Kings and the Flyers. How did all that time as a scout prepare you for the role that you're about to undertake? Well, I've certainly been lucky to be around uh, some uh, some bright minds um, and people that have allowed me to you know partake in in, in different aspects of of the organizations uh, that I've been. Uh, party to, um, you know, Dean Lombardi, Ron Hextall, uh, Chuck Fletcher, uh, were always, you know, kind of open door policy, or at least the door was somewhat ajar. And, um, and so, yeah, I got to, you know, have interaction with the coaches or development staff. And, um, and it just luckily enough, I mean, I got to be part of, of two cup winning teams. So to see, uh, how things were done there that led to, uh, you know, that, that end goal that everybody's striving for um, is, is certainly that's something that's invaluable. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, but uh, at the, all that said, I've got lots to learn. Um, you know, I'm going to uh, do as I've always done, um, you know, put my best forward and work as hard as I can and, and uh, you know, try and be um, – accepting of, of other people's views and opinions and evaluations on players and what we should do. And, and I don't have all the answers. Uh, I never have. Um, but uh, to this point, my approach and, and work ethic has served me well, and hopefully that'll be the case moving forward. And what are the um, responsibilities you, you foresee as the Flyers AGM? Um, uh, so some that I'll carry forward from director of player personnel would be um, I'll still be involved somewhat on the amateur side, but more so uh, being um, organizing the the pro scouting staff um, mm -hmm. as well as uh, being around the the, uh, the flyers on a on a regular basis, uh, have interactions with the coaches, uh, and then the kind of the new duty or responsibility will be to uh, run the uh, Lehigh Valley Phantoms uh, alongside Brent Flair um, and uh, mentor off of, off of uh, Brent. Brent's uh, been in that role for, for many years um, with Minnesota and then uh, most recently with with, uh, with Lehigh uh, and the Flyers. And so <clears throat> I will take on you know, more of that responsibility as the season goes along and, and uh, look forward to um, whatever those interactions and those situations and, and, uh, and, and dealings that I have with the, with the phantoms uh, should help me grow as, as uh, you know, as a uh, upper management uh, uh, seat that I'm now in. Uh, last year, the uh, Lehigh, uh, they made a bit of a fashion statement with uh, all white-out jerseys. Um, as, uh, uh, you know, sort of running the, the Phantoms, uh, do you have the ability to, to nix those jerseys? No, I think that they're, <laughs> uh, they're going to stay, and they are uh, something that are thought fondly of by our fan base. Um, but there won't be uh, the all-white suits uh, and orange ties up in the uh, press box. Uh, by the uh, by the staff, I can tell you that. <laughs> no white skates either, right? 
<laughs> no, no white shoes either. I <laughs> uh, wanted to ask you too, um, you know, you, you've been through, I mean, it's, it's it, uh, 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 noteworthy that you've actually been through uh, three different regime, flyer regimes, you know, Ron <laughs> Hextall, uh, Cliff Fletcher, I'm not, not Cliff Fletcher, Chuck Fletcher. Yeah, Cliff was his dad. Uh, oh, and Cliff, now... Cliff's the one that traded for me in Toronto. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> Small hockey world. <laughs> and now uh, Keith Jones and Daniel Briere. Just, you know, you mentioned your work ethic, your approach. You know, is that kind of what got you through all all, all this change? Um, yeah, I can't say exactly what uh, <laughs> uh, has led to me sticking around through some of those changes. Um Probably some some luck being involved. Um, uh, yeah, I try to, to be um, I don't know inclusive and, and accepting and, and easy to get along with, and uh, as well as you know um, uh, putting in time and and, and working hard. Um, I don't think there's any secret to success on this side of the equation. Um, in in the uh, you're you're constantly evaluating. You're constantly uh, watching players and seeing trends in the game. And the only way to do that—not the only way—I shouldn't say that. You, there are ways now to watch games, uh, you know, via video. Um, the uh, stuff, technology-wise, has, has come a long way. Um, but at the same time, to get a real feel for the game, I, th I do think that you need to uh, sit in the stands and, and watch it. Mm -hmm. um, more so than or more times than not than, than watching it on video um and uh so yeah i've uh, tried to do some of those things and and you know just be myself and uh so far it's it's i've avoided some of the bullets that have been flying uh come come those some of those transitions <laughs> And through a couple of those um, regimes, the Flyers weren't necessarily rebuilding. They were kind of like retooling. Um, what led to the, the decision to finally tear it down a bit or change things? Um, I just think the acceptance of, you know, we're, uh, where we're at and where we need to get to, um, that we need to uh, probably take a step back or maybe two steps back to try and take a few steps forward. Um, it's uh, maybe that sounds a little cliche, but it, uh, uh, and I'm not always wanting to use cliches, but it, mm -hmm. uh, um, yeah, certainly the, right? yeah, well, it, it, you look at some of the teams that have been successful and, and, you know, where do the, like just take recent winners, forget Vegas for a little bit because of their expansion team. And, you look at a lot of these teams and the Ovechkins or the Crosbys or, you know, go back a little further and Datsuk and, and um, Zetterberg, like some of these teams that were built, um, you had to kind of lose. And uh, uh, sorry, I didn't mean Detroit. I meant more Chicago um, and Taze and Kane that, sure. you know, they're real uh, pieces, the core pieces that were built around, uh, Kind of came through some some difficult times and if you want to have those real difference makers in your lineup more times than not that's where those players come from um mm -hmm. and uh you can get lucky with some guys that, that uh, come along later in the draft um but typically the you know the first three picks are, are where that you 
you find those players. I guess Makaro would probably be an exception. You can find exceptions to any general rule, but, um, you know, and not to say that we're looking to bottom out like some of those teams may have, um, but at the same time, may let's have. be realistic where we're at. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, just a couple more for you, Alan. We'll let you go again. Sure. Uh, thank you so much uh, for the time. Uh, one of the striking things about the Flyers rebuild is sort of the transparency of it. And I wonder sort of if you know uh, what sort of is the thinking behind that uh, that transparency. You know, Philly fans aren't necessarily known for their patience, but they're also, you know, thought to be very knowledgeable. And so, you know, when, when uh, we talk about a Flyers rebuild, actually it makes me think of, you know, the 76ers. Uh, they recently rebuilt and they had a whole mantra, uh, trust the process. And it seems like the, the 76ers fans, they indeed kind of, you know, they, they understood that that was something that the team needed to go through to get to where they are now. And so was that, you know, just sort of was the thinking behind the transparency. Was it sort of a trust in the fan base that they would get what you guys are doing? Yeah, I, I, to be honest, I can't speak to it like that uh, I'm privy to uh, knowing exactly why that is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my take on it would be is that I think the more that you're included or, or the more that you're kept up to speed, um, the more willing you are to, you know, be accepting of, of where the team's at and like, sure. okay, this makes sense. And, you know, uh, I can see where the end goal is. And maybe, maybe the end goal changes a little bit. Maybe it's not always in the same spot. Um, uh, I shouldn't say the end goal, but the, uh, you know, it, the path forward. It might, it might change a little bit as, as you go along. Um, you know, I would assume Chicago now that they have Bedard changes a little bit. So, <laughs> you know, stuff like that happens. And, and, uh, but at the same time, to answer your question, I, I just think that, uh, if you're, if you're communicating, um, it's easier to, uh, be aware of what's going on and, and understand, okay, uh, we're, we're here and we want to get to, you know, we're at, the starting point B and we want to get to A and uh, they said that we're going to be here and we're here. And then we're, they said that we're going to be, you know, halfway along here and now we're here. So I, I just, I, I just think that, you know, being transparent uh, takes some of the guesswork out and, mm-hmm. and maybe, maybe some of the, <laughs> the hostility or, or anger about where we're at at times. Um, but we'll see, we'll see how that goes. And yes, the, the flyer fans are demanding and, and that's good. I mean, uh, having expectations and uh, to be successful is fine by me. That's where we want to get to. And the, the flyers being of the the draft and everything were the story of the draft, picking Matt Faye, Mitch Goff, seventh overall. What do you think the hockey world is getting wrong about Mitch Goff? That question. Uh, I don't know if I'd say that people are getting it wrong. Uh, I can understand the reluctance or hesitation that, you know, the player that you haven't seen live or very few people have seen live for a number of years, like it, when it comes to the draft, you are projecting and it is a bit of, uh, you know, educated guesswork. Um, and so it, it made it even more, I don't know, volatile or, or, or um, harder to predict or project where's that player going to get to when you, you haven't really laid your own eyes on them um, mm-hmm. in quite some time. Um, you know, three years ago or two years ago, 
he looked like he was going to be, you know, maybe a player that challenged Bedard. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and so anyway, I, I, I just wouldn't think that he, or that the, the, the hockey world is getting it wrong as much as they're just, um, uh, calculated risk going with, yeah, they're going with, you know, a known commodity versus, you know, uh, one that's more up in the air. Mm-hmm. My, my last question uh, for sure. you, uh, Alan, uh, actually, I, I heard stories of uh, Arizona sneaking scouts into Belarus to uh, to watch players, uh, to watch uh, uh, draft eligible players. And you mentioned, uh, you know, teams not getting uh, their eyes, you know, a lot of teams not not being able to watch Michkov. Uh, were you guys able to watch him uh, last year? Uh, did you guys have a scout there or just, you know, how did how did that that, that come about for you guys, that part of it? Uh, yeah, we did actually, uh, we have a, a scout that's based in, in, uh, in Russia. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, so he was able to, um, you know, see the player, talk to the player, um, uh, communicate with coaches and people around the league. And, and, uh, yeah, so there was, uh, there was some contact and some, um, ability to assess the player. But at the same time, that's one opinion, you know, one sure. one one live opinion. Uh, I certainly watched video on them and did did some homework, but uh, not the same as I, you know, alluded to earlier. That uh, your best opinion for me, I think, is going to come from you know watching the player live. And so <clears throat> we did have someone that was there, but it was you know one one individual. It wasn't a group of of of, of guys and. Uh, I don't, I can't speak to what other teams were able to do or not right. able to do. Right, right, right. Just wondering if uh, you had to sneak anybody in. So, <laughs> no, he was already, he was already in there. Um, I think we had to sneak him out. No, I, he's right. fine. He was able to um, make it into the draft and, and communicate with the players. Mm. Uh, we had a couple interviews with, with Matt Fay and, and uh, a few other Russian uh, draft eligible players as well. Okay, well, uh, Alan, uh, thank you uh, so much uh, for your time. Uh, really appreciate this. Uh, good luck with everything. Good luck your uh, first year as Flyers uh, AGM, and uh, I'll see you down the road. Excellent. Yeah, I look forward to it. Very nice to meet you, Alan. Likewise, Keith.